All right, Luke chapter 23. Say amen if you're there. Amen. All right, we're going we're gonna to read together again. You know my line. I want you to read so loud. I want you to be annoying to your neighbor next to you, okay? So you read very loud. If we don't, if you sound very soft, we're just going to keep reading until we read it out loud and give distinction to the Word of God. By the way, that's biblical. Nehemiah chapter, it says they led the Word of God. They read the Word of God, and they read it distinctly. So let's read it distinctly, loudly. I want you to take the odd number of verses. I'm going to take the even number of verses, and we're going to end at verse 34. So starting verse 27, ending verse 34. All together, and there followed him... But Jesus, turning unto them, said, Daughters of Jerusalem, weep not for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. Church, for behold... Then shall they begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. Church, for if they... And there were also two other malefactors led with him to be put to death. Church. Before I read verse 34, would you notice verse 33 again? And very solemnly, let's just consider what it says. When they were come to the place called Calvary, there, there, there they crucified him. Let that just kind of settle your heart for just a minute. There they crucified our Savior on that hill called Calvary. And verse 34, then said Jesus, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they parted his raiment and cast lots. Father, this morning we, our hearts are overflowing. Our cup is overflowing. Just being in church, being around the family of God, the brothers and sisters in Christ, deepening our roots in the Word of God, here to worship you, to give honor and glory to Jesus Christ. The Bible says unto him, be glory in the church. The glory is not for a cute phrase. The glory is not for an individual in the church or a ministry of the church. It's not for any of those things. Lord, the glory belongs solely to your son, Jesus Christ. And today as we assemble here, we look at this matter of God's forgiveness. We pray in a very special way that your, you'd melt our hearts. We pray, Father, you have our undivided attention. I pray today that, Lord, you put a struggle in our hearts. There may be some, as there is in every place, some of us here today who are struggling in this area of just being, of needing God's forgiveness and struggling and just accepting God's total and complete forgiveness in our lives. And maybe for some of us here today, we're struggling with just being a forgiving person towards someone else or receiving forgiveness from someone else. Father, I pray this morning that you'll have your powerful, sovereign, holy way in each of our hearts. Thank you that, Lord, we have in our possession the holy word of God. And as such, we pray that your word will do a, a, just a wonderful spiritual and surgical work in our lives. Draw, Lord, draw us nearer and closer to you. And we pray that this morning through this that sinners will be saved. We pray through this that Christians will be revived. We pray through this that, Lord, relationships will be strengthened. And in all these things, we give you glory and praise, for it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. The office of the President of the United States carries with us some incredible privileges and powers. 
One of those privileges and powers we call the executive pardon. The executive pardon is the president's ability to override any sentence that has been passed on any criminal. He can override that sentence and clear that person's record and set them free. When an executive pardon is exercised, the individual who is found guilty of a crime, who is incarcerated or even could be on death row, they are exonerated from their crime. And not only are they exonerated, but their crime is also expunged. Expunged meaning it's taken off of their record so that when someone goes back later on to look at that record, they'll see no crime mentioned there. This, this matter of exoneration and expunging are very important for somebody who's under this circumstance. You see, today when we we consider this matter of, um, of an executive pardon, there's two things that are, that are critical here. The first is the, is the power to pardon uh, someone who is in need of forgiveness. And then secondly, the one who's in need of forgiveness receiving that pardon. I think of two very infamous executive pardons. There have been many that have been done, but two infamous executive pardons have been happening in my lifetime. One happened during the presidency of, uh, of Gerald Ford when he came to president, became president after Richard Nixon. And many of you remember back those Watergate days, the Watergate scandal there, and uh, how Richard Nixon was, uh, was, was being impeached, and he basically, uh, it, with, with embarrassment, he resigned as president. Gerald Ford became president, and uh, President Ford uh, it basically cleared, ex- gave the executive pardon to Richard Nixon, clearing him of all his crimes. Following that, not many years later, is George H.W. Bush having give, uh, exercised executive pardon on Casper Weinberger, who was the Secretary of Defense, because of his involvement or perjury dealing with the Iran-Contra uh, Contra incident there. Just many things they found inconsistent with his records and what he had written down and what he said to Congress. And, you know, of course, both men were very embarrassing situations. And the presence of those situations, right or wrong, whether you agreed or not, the president in both situations stepped up and exercised an executive pardon. If you're the one who has the power, you realize how powerful it is to forgive someone else, to forgive them of all of their crimes, all of their, their, their situation, all of their sin. And if you're the one who needs that forgiveness, you know how powerful that is to receive forgiveness and realize that you've got a a new start in your life. Our passage this morning, our study today is still in the nothing but the truth as far as the theme, but notice verse 34. Our focus today is on the words of our Lord Jesus Christ after he was hung on the cross, was crucified there. What is said here in verse 34 is one of seven powerful, life-changing statements that our Lord makes from the cross. Seven life-changing statements. This is the first of those life-changing statements. We'll look at another one next, maybe two of them next week. But he said there on the cross, after they had pounded those nails into his hands, pounded those nails into his feet, he'd already had a very exhausting night of being punished and hurt and pummeled, blood pouring down his body, pain riveting through his body. And as he hung there, in spite of the pain, the agony, the shame, the embarrassment, the railing by sinners all around him, our Lord and Savior, in a way only God could say this, he said out loud so everyone could hear this and recorded by the writers of scripture, Father forgive them. And this morning we want to look at God and his forgiveness. You see this morning when we think of the word forgiveness, we have to consider what does forgiveness mean? What, what does it all imply? And looking it up here in the original language as used here in the Bible the word forgive has the implication or forgiveness has the implication to send away, to let go to cancel a debt to release from an obligation. I mean, think about it for just a minute. It means to send away, 
It means to let go. It means to cancel a debt. It means to release from an obligation. When we talk about forgiveness, we also wrap with that forget forgetfulness. In other words, we forgive and we forget. And we want to look at this morning for a few moments the power of God's forgiveness in your life and mine. The power that was demonstrated by the words of our Lord Jesus Christ when he said in Luke 23, 34, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Notice, if you would, some things about this passage of scripture. Notice first of all in verse 33 the place of forgiveness. Would you notice the place of forgiveness? Would you notice in verse 33 it says, and when they were come to the place which is called Calvary. Now the word that's being used here is where is the word for this location, this mountain as you would, this little hill uh, it, it goes by two names. In Matthew and Mark and John they refer to this location as Golgotha. Golgotha is, is, the, is, the, is, is the Greek word for this location. Here in Luke, Luke used a word that in the Aramaic and Latin is, is translated Calvary. In all four instances it still means the same. The word has the, it means, uh, it's where we get our word, it's the word cranion, where we get our word cranium from. And basically it's translated the skull. The, the hill that Jesus Christ was crucified on was shaped like a skull. There's an ancient Hebrew Hebrew legend that goes back many years ago that some believe that the head of Goliath, after after David took that head, that some Jews took the head of Goliath and they believe that the, that, the, that just happened to be at the location that the head of Goliath was buried. There's no way that anyone can substantiate or prove that, but it's a legend that is prevalent among the Hebrews there. But as we look at this location, this was a place not very far from the northern wall of Jerusalem, a short walking distance from the northern wall of Jerusalem, where criminals were taken and they were crucified. The crucifixion, as we'll see in a minute, was a very cruel and very barbaric form of punishment. Golgotha, or Calvary, this place of a skull, was a place where many crucifixions had happened. The Romans had, had executed many men there, and typically a man that would be executed there would be a criminal or slave never would a Roman citizen be crucified there but when you had said the word crucifixion when you mentioned the name Golgotha in someone's mind their blood would start to curdle their hair would start to stand up their flesh would feel a just a coldness over it because there on Calvary there in Golgotha an individual that was placed on the cross would suffer there they would suffer unbearable pain they would suffer just in pain that you indescribable pain they would under they would just undergo such a terrible, terrible, horrific moment. And there at that place, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, was taken and placed there. John said in his gospel, John 19, verses 17 and 18, and he, bearing his cross, went forth into a place called the place of a skull, which is called in the Hebrew, Golgotha, where they crucified him and two others with him, one on, on, on either side and Jesus in the midst. Here we find our Savior, Jesus Christ, crucified with two criminals. They're called malefactors, thieves, and men equivalent to Barabbas who was set free. Our Savior, who was sinless, was crucified. He was likened and made like, just like a criminal there, made, put there with these malefactors or these criminals there. It's our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who was placed on that cross. Someone has said this about Calvary, about Golgotha, this, this place where Jesus went, was placed. They said this, of all times, it is the turning point. Of all love, it is the highest point. Of all salvation, it is the starting point. And of all worship, it is the central point. You see, this morning, we must come to the place where our Savior was crucified. We must come to the place where he shouted out those words, Father, forgive them. There, in spite of the affliction, there, 
spite of the punishment, there in spite of the hatred, there in spite of the blasphemies, there in spite of the vile things said of him, our Savior with pity, with a love breaking forth with, for that crowd of people and for the world at large, said, Father, forgive them. There at that place, forgiveness could be found. Jesus gave forgiveness. You have to understand when Jesus went to that place, Golgotha, that that was, if you would, a, a, a Jesus fulfilling what was done in the Old Testament with the sin offering. When a sin offering was made, the body of that animal that was offered, normally the goat or the bull, the skin and the hide, the remains of that animal would be taken outside what the Bible says outside the camp because it would be considered a defilement and was taken outside the camp. And you'll notice in the book of Hebrews, the writer Paul makes mention of this. He says, wherefore Jesus also that he might sanctify the people with his own blood suffered without the camp. You see, we must start at Golgotha. We must go to the place of Golgotha because Golgotha is the place where forgiveness is found. Golgotha is the starting point for salvation. Golgotha is the starting point for us to realize we as sinners, our sins were placed on Jesus Christ and there Jesus died for the sins of all the world. It is there you can find forgiveness. It is there you find Jesus Christ. It is there you find our Savior with tears coming down his eyes and a broken heart and blood pouring out of those open wounds leading the way for you and I to come to him. It's there at Calvary. Mercy there was great and grace was free. And pardon there is multiplied for you and me. It is there at the cross that the way of the cross leads home. We see the place this morning where, the, where forgiveness would be found. But notice secondly, we not only see the place, would you notice secondly, we see the people. Would you notice the company of people there? The Bible says in verse 27, there was a great company of people and of women. But even before we look at the people and women, would you consider the crowd that was there that came to Calvary on that particular morning? Typically, when a criminal was crucified, it didn't draw a large gathering of people. It may be those most affected by the crime, and maybe those who were hurt by the crime would be there. And of course, the magistrates would be there, and the soldiers would be there. But on this particular day, there was a large gathering, a large group of people that was there watching Jesus as he was crucified. I draw your attention this morning to the beginning of chapter 23. There were the elders of the Jews and there was the priests, and there were those who served as priests there, and there were the Roman soldiers, as we read here in this passage, and there was a great company of people, if you would, they called, they said, women who bewailed him. These were professional mourners who followed after him, a great company of women. There were those who were close to the Lord Jesus Christ, Mary, his mother, Mary Magdalene, and Salome, the, the mother of John, and, 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 and James was there. And we find these folks here. We find two criminals that were nailed next to Jesus. They're called malefactors, one on his right hand and one on his left. We, we see a large gathering of people. Jesus said in verse 34, Father, forgive them, not forgive him. Jesus is saying in the plural. He's thinking about all the people there at that cross. There are the soldiers, and there are the priests, and there are the common men, and there was just John, the only disciple that came, and there were the women who followed their weeping, and there were the professional wailers that were there. And there were the priests that were there who condemned him. There was Pontius Pilate there in the background. There is a, at least a minimum four Roman soldiers that were there. And then those who were back in the praetorium who, who hit Jesus and beat him there. I mean, there's this large gathering of people, the soldiers there that gambled for his clothes and the thieves who were there who were cursing him and had broken the laws and deserved to be crucified. And yet not our Savior deserving it, but yet he was crucified there. This entire group of people, listen this morning, I see the 
these people there. But I see somebody else there. I see another group of people. I see you and I see me there. I see us there because you realize this morning, sinful hands nailed Jesus to the cross. I want you to understand this morning that they or the people were those created hands nailing our creator to the cross. I want you to understand this morning, the mouths that were created were the mouths that were railing upon the creator of their mouths and who gave them the words. I remind you this morning of the words of the apostle Peter in Acts 2.33. Him be delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. Listen, he said, ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. Paul, later on, Peter said in Acts 5.30, he said, the God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom ye slew and hanged on a tree. I'm reminded this morning of a, of a little boy that was in a Easter service there, and his father tried to explain to him the significance of the cross, and he was trying to explain to his son what it meant that Jesus died on the cross for the sins of everyone there. And as the little boy was listening very carefully to his father, his father made the statement. He said, son, Jesus died because people nailed him to the cross. And the little boy, of course, being very naive and being very innocent, he had a question on his face and he said, dad, which people? And then he got up and he looked across the church and he pointed to everybody in the room. He said, these people? These people, are these the people that nailed Jesus to the cross? And I remind you this morning, all of us are guilty of putting Jesus on the cross. I want to tell you, it's not just wicked hands that put Jesus on the cross. Those of us who consider ourselves good, and those of us who consider ourselves religious, and those who consider ourselves spiritual, I remind you that every sinner is guilty for putting Jesus on the cross, because Jesus there on the cross had to come to die for your sins and mine. Jesus took your place and mine. When he said, Father, forgive them, he had the entire world in his mind. That's why every time we read John 3, 16, and we think about the words, for God so loved the world. The world is not just the people on the outside. That's you and me. God so loved us that he gave Jesus Christ his son. He gave his only begotten son, the only one of his kind, the only one who was virgin born, the only one who was sinless, the only one who could satisfy God's demand for sin, the only one who could die for your sins and mine, the only one who had propitious blood that could propitiate your sins and mine, the only one that had pure and sinless blood that could be shed for your sins and mine. There, Jesus died for you and for me and for all people. We see the place and we see the people. What you notice thirdly this morning, we see the performance. The Bible says in verse 33, when they were come to the place, which is all called Calvary, there they crucified him. The crucifixion was the cruelest, most barbaric of punishments. The Romans were not the inventors of that. They inherited what they learned from the Assyrians and the Persians. Their variations of crosses. The one being crucified, the cross would weigh somewhere upwards of 300 pounds. Would have a vertical shaped wood and a cross and a, and a, and a bar. Many believe that the cross that Jesus bore, mainly he, what he bore was mainly the bar portion because the other part was just too, too heavy for any man having gone through the punishing, went through to carry that. And Jesus carried that cross as far as he could with some assistance in the beginning from a man called Simon the Cyrenian. And there that cross represented punishment. 
There that cross represented a prisoner being nailed there for his sins. Look at verse 33 again. It says here, and with him malefactors, one on the right hand, the other on the left. These two men, these two thieves, these robbers, and perhaps even murderers, these men were found guilty of their crimes. There was, there was enough evidence to point to the fact that these men deserved to die for their crime. They were under penal law there. But Jesus was not found guilty of having broken the law. Jesus was not found guilty of doing anything against the law. Jesus was nailed to the cross because he was, he was the Son of God, because the Jews would not believe and accept that he was the Son of God. They coerced and forced Pontius Pilate to declare him guilty and to put him on the cross. They wanted Pontius Pilate to declare that, and they used politics to convince him of that. In the beginning, Pontius Pilate said, I wash my hands clean of this man. I find no fault in him. But later on, he turns him over to these wicked sinners and says, you can have him. You can crucify him. You can put him to death. And Paul sent Jesus forth to be scourged and beaten on the back there. Listen, that cross that Jesus bore as he walked his way slowly and with pain riveting through his body and blood pouring out of his wounds and just, rip, just, just, just suffering immensely. We find our Savior coming to this place called Calvary. And there we find the crucifixion. There sin would be paid for. There our Savior would place his only son and turn his eyes from his son. And all of heaven would be blackened and darkened from 12 noon to three in the afternoon because there Jesus died for every sinner. Would you consider the performance there on that cross? Go with me to Isaiah chapter 53, please. Notice in Isaiah 53, verses 4 to 6, the first thing we see as far as the performance, we see the sacrifice in this performance. We must not get away from the fact that Jesus' death on the cross was a sacrifice. Listen, when the Jews instituted the Passover, they had to take a first a, a lamb of the first year and was offered as a sacrifice. A sacrifice implied they would give their best. A sacrifice implied there would have to be a death. A sacrifice implied the giving of one's life. A sacrifice implied the shedding of blood. A sacrifice was costly. You could smell the blood. You could smell the scent when it was burned. Listen, when the sacrifice was given, it applied a cost that was involved. And notice in Isaiah 53, in verses 4 through 6, and of course I encourage you to read the whole chapter. There, if you'll follow as I read this, would you notice the sacrifice that Jesus Christ endured for you and I? It says, Surely... He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him, smit, stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. God allowed wicked sinners to punish his son. He was smitten of God and afflicted. And in verse 5 it says this, But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with the stripes we are healed. I want you to pause here for a moment and consider, as you go back to Isaiah 52, the, the, the very blunt description Isaiah Isaiah gives of the punishment Jesus received. He was beaten on the face by the palms of these soldiers. And they pour, they tore the, the facial hair off his face. And the Bible says he was so marred, he was so beaten, he was beyond recognition. They pummeled our Savior. They took some thorns, and thorns, of course, representing the curse of sin, because thorns started to grow in the Garden of Eden when sin came in. And thorns representing the curse of sin, they fashioned these thorns into a crown, and they thrust it on the head of our Savior to mock him because 
because he is the king of Jews. And they mocked him and said, well, if you're the king of the Jews, we'll give you a crown that, that, that's fitting for you. And as they thrust that crown of thorns on his head, those sharp, prickly thorns pierced his temple and blood started to go down. And you can imagine the wincing of our, the face of our Lord as it was pounced down on him and the throbbing pain across his head as the crown of thorns was, was piercing his skull. Can you imagine them? Our Lord and Savior was stretched out against a pillar and there in the pillar they stripped his back off of all the clothing he had and there the Bible says they scourged him. They gave him 39 stripes and with those 39 stripes each one of the leather attached to that cord had a piece of bone or a piece of glass or a piece of rock to it or maybe a metal piece on it and every time it hit him it would bruise him or worse yet it would embed itself in his skin and as the, as the expert who was, was scourging him would pull it back, pull the, the, the whip back, it would pull chunks of skin out of his back. Many believe medically speaking that our Savior's back was lacerated and torn to shreds to even where organs of his body were exposed and showing. I mean, our Savior was suffering very terribly. Many men could not make it endure if they went through 39 or 40 strikes. Most men would expire there just being, being, uh, being hit with that. But our Savior, because he was all man as well as all God, our Savior endured all that for you and I. That's why the Bible says, consider him which endured such contradiction of sinners. And we see our Savior in verse 5. Isaiah describes it this way. He was wounded for our transgression. Wounds imply a somebody piercing another person. It implies a, a wound of some kind, an open pore, something that was opened up in the skin of this person where blood came out and flesh came out. He was wounded for our transgressions. The word transgressions implies the, the crossing of a forbidden line. He was bruised for our iniquities. Notice if you would, as he was beaten by the soldiers and beaten by the whip and he was slapped across the face, there were bruises all over our body. And where there's bruises, there's swelling. He was bruised for your iniquities and mine. The word iniquity expresses the depravity of man the worstness of our sins. Jesus was beaten, not for his sins, but for your sins and mine. He was wounded, not for his transgressions, because he had none, but he was wounded for your transgressions and mine. Notice in verse 5, it says, the chastisement of our peace was upon him. In order for peace or reconciliation to be accomplished, Jesus was chastened for you and I. Criminals, I could see, could be chastened. Those who've broken the law, I could see being chastened. But the sinless Son of God was chastened for you and me. And then Isaiah pulls it all together. He says, with his stripes we are healed. On his back, whatever was remaining in the flesh, there were the, there were the scars that would remain permanently because of the scars of the, the, the stripes on his back. And then Isaiah goes on in verse 6 and he says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Would you understand the sacrifice this morning? Would you understand it today? The Bible says, all we like sheep have gone astray, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. You see, in the Jewish tradition, in the way that God had given them the law, the sacrifice for sins would be a man offering a lamb. In the beginning days, we go back to the days when Adam and Eve learned that they had to do a sacrifice. It was one lamb for every man. And then later on, we would see that there, the sacrifice would be made for the nation of Israel there in Exodus chapter 12. And it was one lamb for every household. And now we go over here, we later on, they would institute the um, Moses would institute the tabernacle. It would be one lamb every year for, for the entire nation. So it began as one lamb for one man and one lamb for an entire household and one lamb for an entire nation. But notice as Jesus Christ now comes, he would be the fulfillment of all prophecy. After Jesus would be crucified, there was no more need for a sacrifice because he was the ultimate sacrifice. He was the lamb for sinners slain. No wonder John the Baptist, when he saw Jesus come, come down that the shores of Galilee in the early days of his ministry, he said, behold the lamb of God, which takes 
taketh away the sins of the world. I mean, John had faith. He had vision. He knew his scriptures. He saw Jesus, and he saw the Lamb, the perfect Lamb, who would give his life for all. And I remind you this morning, Jesus Christ would be the one Lamb for all the world, for you and I. Christ gave himself as a sacrifice. He was the perfect sacrifice. He was the ultimate sacrifice. He was the propitious sacrifice. He was the atoning sacrifice. He was God's sacrifice for you and me on the cross here. I remind you today, that cross is not a place where we put a decoration around our neck and we work around, say, I'm a Christian because I got a cross on my neck. I remind you that cross is a semblance of pain and of punishment and of sacrifice. I remind you that cross is the place where God, the Son, came and died for man. I remind you, the Son of Man became the Son of God. The Son of God became the Son of Man so that sons of men could become sons of God. I remind you, no matter how good you are, I, don't, I remind you this morning, every one of us are terrible sinners by one man sinning into the world and death by man. So then death has passed upon all men for all of sin. You say, preacher, I've only committed one sin. One sin will send you to hell. One sin has already condemned you. One sin has already brought you under the sentence of God the Father. And I remind you today, Jesus Christ died for that one sin. Jesus Christ died for all of our sins. I remind you today, our sins are wicked. Our sins are terrible. Our sins are heinous. Our sins are abominable. Listen, God hates sin. And God hates sin so much that sin had to be, had to be paid for. And Jesus Christ, when he was a sacrifice for sin, he was a sacrifice for all of our sins. Thank God this morning for the sacrifice and performance. But notice, secondly, if you go to 1 Peter chapter 2, would you notice the suffering in this performance? 1 Peter chapter 2. There on the cross, Jesus suffered unimaginable torture, pain, and ultimately death. It was a slow, agonizing death. And notice Peter as he talks about suffering and the context of what Peter writes to the church, the, the, the scattered brethren there is dealing with suffering. Notice he says in 1 Peter 2 beginning verse 21, For even hereunto were you called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that ye should follow his steps. Now notice in the suffering, when we have a pain, we suffer. For instance, if you've got a toothache that's really bad, you know how bad that feels. I mean, it's just shooting through your mouth, you feel bad. Or if you've, if you've ever broken a limb, you know how painful that can be. Or if you've ever pulled or tore a muscle, you know how painful that can be. Or if you've ever recovered from major surgery, you, the first day you're out, after the kind of pain medicine wears off, you know what that feels like. And all of the combined pain we'd have in this room, we know nothing compared to the suffering of our Lord Jesus Christ. The suffering implies great suffering. The suffering implies agonizing suffering. The suffering implies there was no pain medication that could take it away. It was tormentous. It was just riveting through the brain and through the body of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And in spite of all of that, notice in verse 22, it says, who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth, who when he was reviled, reviled not again. I want you to understand, when you're in pain, and at least I know when I'm in pain, sometimes somebody may say something, and they didn't understand or I didn't understand it and we have a tendency because this pain is going through we have a tendency we may snap back at somebody you know you know what I'm talking about there you just, well, don't you get it there you know you snap back at them and don't you understand I'm not feeling very good that wasn't what our Savior did our Savior is so perfect and he was so God when he was reviled when he was railed when he was cursed upon when he's called nasty names when he was derogatory things were said and they made fun of him and they spat on him and they slapped him and even the criminals who are nailed next to him on their two crosses when they railed on him he did terrible things the Bible says in verse 22 here, it says verse 23, when he was reviled, he reviled not again. 
Hey, that's a good example for you and me. Sometimes we think when we're being criticized or somebody says something that we don't appreciate very well, we feel it's within our right that we have to respond back and give our two cents. May I remind you, let's look at the example of our Savior. When he reviled, he reviled not again. He held his tongue. He held his mouth. He said, it's not worth saying it. And Jesus showed that, Lord, he endured for, the, for our sake all the suffering that needed to be done. And it says in verse 23, when he was reviled, he reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself unto him that judges righteously, who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree, that we being dead to sin should live unto righteousness, by whose stripes you're healed. Hey, listen this morning. In that performance, we find sacrifice in that performance. We find suffering in that performance. We don't have words to describe the suffering he went through. We don't have words to describe those, the torment Jesus went through that entire evening. I mean, just the fact he'd been beaten, he'd been embarrassed, he was had a sleepless night. Can you imagine the pulsating pain in his organs? Can you imagine the pulsating pain throughout his limbs? Can you imagine what was going through his nervous system? Can you imagine the hurt he felt? Can you imagine the shame he felt? Can you imagine all that? Listen, our Savior suffered all that for every sinner. There was the suffering and the performance. There was the sacrifice and performance. Would you notice 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 18? What did you notice? The substitution in that performance. There on that cross, the only acceptable substitute for sins hung for you and I. Good works is not a substitute for your sins. Belonging to a church is not a substitute for your sins. Being a philanthropist and giving all your money away is not a substitute for your sins. You cannot ask someone else, no matter how good that person is in this lifetime or previous lifetime, to be a sacrifice or substitute for your sins. There's only one acceptable substitute, and praise God this morning with Jesus Christ. The Bible says in verse 18, For Christ also has once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. I remind you this morning, if you think of our Savior, the severe dehydration, you imagine as he hung on the cross, the immense pressure on his lungs and the water built up in his lungs the pneumonia that built up and the weakening of his heart the weakening of his kidneys the slow agonizing death and there Jesus Christ took your place and mine he was the just dying for the unjust the sinless dying for the sinner the son of God dying for sons of men Christ took your place Do you understand that today he took your place imagine if you were sentenced to death row Jesus took your place he endured all that he suffered for you and I he suffered those things. He was our substitute. He was the sacrifice. There was the performance of our Savior there on that cross. There on that cross is where Jesus said, Father, forgive them. But sin would have to be paid for in full. Sin would have to be paid for in its entirety. And there in that performance, Christ did that in his suffering. And Christ did that through his sacrifice. And Christ did that through his substitution. Charles Spurgeon said this about the crucifixion of our Savior. We owe all to Jesus crucified. What is your life, my brethren, but the cross? Whence comes the bread of your soul, but from the cross? What is your joy, but the cross? What is your delight? What is your heaven, but the blessed one, once crucified for you? Whoever liveth to make intercession for you. Cling to the cross, then. Put both arms around it. Hold to the crucified, and never let him go. Come afresh to the cross at that moment, and rest there now and forever. Oh, this morning, we see the place, and we see the people, and we see the performance. But would you notice verse 34? Would you notice as Jesus is there? Would you notice the pardon? When the cross was lifted off the ground, after the condemned individual had been nailed there, 
They'd have to lift the cross up with ropes because it was so heavy and so big and awkward. There would be a hole in the ground, and as they lifted, they hoisted it to go in. As soon as that bottom bar, the vertical bar, got into that hole, it would make a thud. And that thud, in some cases, would pull the joints out of joint. In some cases, it would tear and rip the muscles. In some cases, it would put the person in more of a debilitating situation where the death process would go much more quickly. In many cases, a crucifixion, the person could expire within hours, in some cases, in days. The Jews purposely crucified Jesus in these two things, the day or the night before, the day before Passover. And so the Jews wanted an expeditious execution. They wanted an expeditious crucifying of our Savior. And so they made this as torturous as possible. And I want you to imagine there, Jesus who's exhausted, Jesus who's dehydrated, Jesus who's in pain, Jesus who's suffering, Jesus who's bleeding, Jesus who's weak, there on that cross, he could have looked back, he could have closed his eyes and said, I'm not going to pay attention to it. Would you notice the first thing on his heart and mind in verse 34? He's thinking about the people around that cross. He's thinking about the people assembled there. He's thinking about you and he's thinking about me. He's thinking as only God can think. He wasn't thinking retribution. He wasn't thinking about revenge. He wasn't thinking about judging upon them. He could have called 10,000 angels and they could have come down and done justice upon those people. He wasn't thinking that. Hey, isn't it wonderful this morning? Jesus was thinking mercy. Listen, mercy there was great and grace was free. Pardon there was multiplied for you and me. And there are saviors. He's thinking mercy. He cried out these words. He said, Father, forgive them. He called upon the one that the Jews said, there's no way you could be related to the Father. There's no way you and the Father are one the same. But there as he called on the Father, he equated his submission to the Father will and yet his equality with the father is God father forgive them there he was saying on his behalf and on behalf of the Godhead I'm willing to forgive them he says father forgive them for they know not what they do these soldiers know not what they do they gambled for his clothes this and they spit upon him they had no idea who he was they put a sign up on on top of that cross and said Jesus Christ Jesus of Nazareth the king of the Jews he said father forgive them for they know not what they do we see Jesus executing uh, executing pardon for them while he's dying on the cross. Listen, when we think about the ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ, all through his ministry, he advocated, he promoted, and he taught forgiveness. I think of there, just there in the, in the, in the, in the model prayer he gives in Matthew chapter 6, he teaches us forgiveness there. I think of there later on in Matthew 18, when Peter came to him and asked the question, Lord, how often should I forgive my enemies? And he said, and he said seven times, and Jesus said, nay, but 70 times, seven times. Our Lord advocated forgiveness. There on the Sermon on the Mount, he said we are to forgive our enemies, and we're to pray for them. When he advocated forgiveness, he said we should forgive unconditionally, not conditionally. When he said we are to forgive, we're to forgive and we're to forget. We're to go on with life. We're to forgive repeatedly. We're to forgive continuously. He said what demonstrates you and makes you different from other people is your forgiveness. Are you willing to forgive? If I can confess this morning, perhaps the weakest area in your Christian life and my Christian life is our ability to forgive. We still remember things going back five years ago and 15 years ago and 20 years ago. We remember something somebody did to us. We carry these, we carry the accounts with us. And when we 
see that individual or think about that incident, it comes back and burns us because we're burning inside. We have a hard time forgiving. If we're living with bitterness, we have a hard time forgive, for, forgiving. If we have enemies who revile us and enemies who criticize us and come against us, we have a hard time forgiving. And listen, Jesus, all through his ministry, up to the very moment of time, up until we get to this point of the cross, he's still in this process of advocating and teaching us the necessity and the essence of forgiveness. May I say this morning, as brothers and sisters of Christ, oh, may God help us to humble our hearts and cause ourselves to come down and say, God, I'll have a forgiving spirit towards others who have hurt me and those who have done injustice to me. Lord, help me to forgive. And notice all the injustice that could be poured out on someone and all the terrible things that can be done. They were all done on Jesus. Don't think that something bad that's happened to you, that there's nothing like it. Jesus endured everything we've, we've ever gone through and then much more. And there in spite of all that, he cried out, Father, forgive them. Our Savior said, there's pardon here. There's mercy here. There's forgiveness here. Hey, aren't you glad today when you can look at the cross, you see someone who's dying for you and someone who gave himself for you, who offers you forgiveness for all your sins. Amen. But you notice there's favor and forgiveness. Psalms 101 verse 13, like as a father pitieth his children, so the Lord pitieth them that fear him. Oh, I'm so thankful this morning, brother and sister Christ, there's pity with God the Father. Amen. He pities us like as a father pities the children. By the way, that's just good advice for fathers. Sometimes your kids can wear you out. And they'll exasperate you. And sometimes you'll say something like this to your wife, that son of yours, not, not his son, but that son of yours, I should say, that son of yours, and you're just exasperating the kid. Hey, I'm thankful our heavenly father, he pities us. He looks at us with pity. He looks at our sins and he looks at our ailments. He looks at us and he has tears coming down like as a father pitieth his children. So the Lord pitieth those who love him. Hey, thank God this morning where there's forgiveness, there's favor. He erases our sins away. He forgives and forgets. He expunges our sins. That's where we get the word justification from. The Bible says in Romans 5, 1, therefore being justified by faith, we have peace with God. We say this with, with everyone. Justification means God looks at you and me just as if we've never sinned. The account is clear. The record's clear. Praise God for today. It's like the song we sing, the old account was settled. I want to impress upon you this morning for some of us here today who are insecure about our faith and a little bit insecure about forgiveness and a little bit insecure about God's love and a little bit insecure about our assurance of salvation. I want to assure you this morning as the Bible is God's word that God pities you and God loves you. And I want to tell you this morning, get rid of your insecurities and realize today there is favor in God's forgiveness for your life and mine. There's favor in forgiveness. But notice, would you notice 1 John 1, 9? There's fairness in forgiveness. You know, have you ever said this? I forgive you, but on these conditions. Have you ever said this? I forgive you, but don't do it again. Or have you said, hey, I forgive you, but this is like the 10th time you've done this to me. Now I want you to notice 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins to him, by the way, thank God today, as a Christian, you can keep coming back to God and ask for forgiveness. Because we still have sin. If we confess our sins, notice these next two words. He's faithful and just. God is fair. In fact, can I give you an adjective that describes his fairness? He's more than fair. Amen? Amen. He's faithful and he's just. He weighs the balances. And technically speaking, the balances, we're out of balance but he's just. He equalizes the balance because after we're forgiven, it's all equal. It's forgiven. He's faithful. Every morning you come to him and every night you come to him, he's faithful. 
and just to forgive us. Listen, some, I was reading the story the other day about the, the Warriors got upset. Three of the players for the, the Golden State Warriors got upset because uh, they felt the refereeing a particular game was not very good. I don't know if you saw that the other day. And three of them got fined. I think the combined, the, the total fines was $75,000 because they were critical of the referees because they felt like the refereeing and officiating wasn't very good and so forth like that. And, you know, I, I was thinking, man, if you guys got that kind of money to blow, I need $75,000 for our building program. You know, you could donate it to us there, you know. But anyway, that, that's just, I didn't ask you for anything about that. But anyway, but so, but you know, you think about it, they're, they're, they're critical of that, and they got fined for that. Now, can I tell you something today? God is fair. When we deserve more, he doesn't inflict it on us. He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Hey, that's just a promise for you this morning. If you're struggling with sin in your life, you're struggling with the past, you're struggling with something in your Christian life. Hey, today, you claim 1 John 1, 9. He's faithful and just to forgive you your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Hey, I want to tell you this morning, our God, when he forgives, when Jesus cried out, Father, forgive them, he was ex exercising favor. He was exercising fairness. But would you notice something else? He was exercising freedom. When there's forgiveness, you're set free. You're liberated. Look at Colossians 1, 14. Would you do that, please? It says, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. Now, this is one of the many reasons I, 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 I'm thankful for the King James Version translation of the Bible. Because the King James Version, the King James translators of 1611 were faithful to making sure that they tied blood to redemption. In whom we have redemption through his blood. Most modern-day versions, which do use an unreliable underlying text, don't say through his blood, they say, whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Redemption how? I'm thankful it clarifies the redemption through his blood. Amen? We are bought with the blood of Jesus Christ. For you're not redeemed with corruptible things of silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Hey, this this morning, it cost God his blood. It cost him the shedding of his blood. It cost his life. Hey, when did we have redemption? Redemption through what? Was it through money? Was it through some? No. It's redemption through the blood of Jesus Christ. Christ in the context there. Amen. And so we see the shedding of the blood of Jesus Christ, and it says accurately and, and biblically, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. You know what that's saying there? The word redemption has the idea of slavery. And slavery is bad no matter how, what kind, no matter how, you, how do you twist it. Slavery is bad. It's inhumane. It's unbiblical. It's ungodly. And in those days, they'd go to the market, you'd go to the marketplace, you wanted a slave. You'd pay 30 pieces of silver and buy that slave, and that slave had no right. You owned that person. They were your property. That's a terrible thing to say. You bought that person, and listen, they became your property. But listen, God took the word redemption and gave it a higher meaning. He said, oh, listen, God, he bought us not with silver and gold, and God didn't buy us with property and real estate. He bought us with the shed blood of his son, Jesus Christ. And when he bought us, he didn't buy us to make us slaves. He bought us to set us free from the slavery of sin this morning. Sin has its bondage upon you and I, and we're set free. And when the Holy Spirit of God lives inside of you and I, we have that freedom because the Bible tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. Stories told of a little boy that was visiting his grandparents with his, with his sister. Grandparents lived way out in the country somewhere, somewhere like in the, the Napa area, Santa Rosa, where there's great farmland and pasture land. 
And he liked going there because it was open, open area. They owned many acres of land. And his sister and he liked to go there and spend time with the grandparents. And the grandparents managed the entire farmland very well. And they managed the animals very well, their herd and so forth. And the boy always liked to go there for no other reason. He liked to, his grandfather made him a slingshot. And he always liked to take the slingshot and take some little pebbles there and rocks. And he just liked to practice his slingshot. But one of his difficulties was that he didn't have enough strength to pull it back far enough to get a very, very far, uh, far extent where, the, where, the, where, where we let the sling go would go off. And so he kept practicing, practicing, practicing. And then what that first day as he's practicing, he happened to spy that a, a little animal was coming by and it happened to be his grandmother's pet duck. Now, he didn't care it was his grandmother's pet duck. And you know, little boys, they get a little mischievous. They think, he's thinking, well, I'm a bad shot anyway, you know. And so he picks up this rock, a little bit bigger rock. He aims it. And, the, and you know, the, the, little, the little duck is popped from here to this music stand right there. And he aims it. He thinks, well, I, I don't even get it. But he let it go. And it happened. That's the only time he hit his bullseye. Unfortunately, when he hit the duck, he killed the duck. Oh, man. That's grandma's pet duck, and he killed the duck, and he's thinking, oh, man, what am I going to do? And he's frantic, and he's, you know, he's feeling like, okay, what am I going to do here? And he does like Adam and Eve. He wants to hide things, amen? You know, so he takes the little duck, and he goes behind the woodshed, and he makes a little hole, and he buries it behind the woodshed, thinking nobody saw it, except one person saw it. By the way, that's just a reminder to us. Somebody always sees when we sin. And it happened to be his little sister, Sally, the older sister, saw that he killed that duck. Well, you know, Grandma and Grandpa, a little while later, Grandma comes out. Hey, we need to get dinner ready. She said, Sally, would you come in and help me? She said, oh, Grandma, you don't understand. Little Johnny here said he'd be more than glad to set up the dishes and more than glad to do your help there. there. And she said, remember the duck, remember the duck. And so Johnny went inside and set the table, got everything cleaned up, wiped down the counters, everything, got everything done. And then as soon as dinner was over, Grandma said, now, Sally, I need help. You're the older sister. I need help to do the dishes and clear things away and take the garbage. Oh, she said, you don't understand. Johnny told me before, before dinner time. He'd be more than glad to do the dish. In fact, he wants to do the dish, and he wants to wipe the tables down. He wants to do all that, take the garden. And she whispered, don't forget the duck. Don't forget the duck. And so this went on for eight days. I mean, anything Sally was supposed to do for chores on the farm, she would basically look at her brother and say, oh, Johnny would do it. And she said, don't forget the duck. Don't forget the duck. Well, Johnny, after several days, he just got worn out and exasperated that his little sister kept volunteering for all these dirty projects, and she got off scot-free, and she went off and went and hiking and did fishing and all these things with her grandfather. Well, Johnny had to stay by behind and do all the work. Well, finally, Johnny broke under the pressure of all that. And he went to his grandma and said, Grandma, can I talk to you for a minute? She said, sure, Johnny. And she said, what's the matter? She, he said, Grandma, and he started crying. He said, Grandma, I have to tell you something. I did something very bad. He said, the other day when I got here, I was practicing my slingshot, and I'm a very bad shot, but it just happened. I aimed at your little pet duck, and I let it go, and it hit your duck, and it killed your duck. Grandma, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry, Grandma. Would you forgive me? Would you forgive me? And Grandma had a big smile and pulled him next to her, and she hugged him. And she says, Johnny, she said, I saw what you did already. I saw that day when you killed my little duck. She said, I forgave you in the moment when you did that. She said, my only question is, why did you wait so long to come to me and allow Sally to make you her slave for all that time? <laughs> Can I say something today? That's how a lot of us are. We're slaves to sin. We're slaves to sin. We're under the bondage of sin. Because in our mind, someone is convinced us. And by the way, whoever it was to convince you, it originated with the, lo- the devil because the, de- the devil is the author of all lies. Someone convinced you that God could not forgive you. And I want to tell you this morning, the Bible tells us emphatically, God forgives us of our sins. There on the cross, Jesus looked at these wicked sinners who blasphemed him, who took the name of God in vain and did all those things, those wicked hands that took him to slay him. He said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Listen, this morning, thank God for pardon. Oh, this morning, we're almost done. We see the place. We see the people. We see the performance. We see the pardon. As we close this morning, would you notice the peace that forgiveness gives? 
Everyone there, forgiveness was available to them. Everyone there, Jesus died for all sin. By the way, thank God today, Jesus didn't die for a few sinners. He died for every sinner this morning. He tasted death for every man. And peace, as we look at it here, means this. Forgiveness tells us that animosity has been resolved between the two factioning parties, and there's peace. That's why the word reconciliation is so important for us in our Bible vocabulary. Because where there's reconciliation, there is peace. Would you consider Colossians 1.20 this morning? And having made peace through the blood of his cross. There again, there had to be the shedding of blood. Having made peace through the blood of his cross, by him to reconcile all things unto himself. By him, I say, whether they be things in earth or things in heaven. When Christ died for our sins, he offers to every one of us complete and total forgiveness. With that forgiveness, yes, there's freedom, and yes, there's favor, and yes, there's fairness, but we must not overlook there's peace because now we have peace with God. We have peace with God. He reconciled himself for us. God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself. Now, we are the ones who offended God. As sinners, we are the ones who sinned against God. We should be the one coming to God and reconciling with him. But would you notice what God does here? God is the one reconciling with us. The one who was offended is reconciling with the offender. The one who is just is reconciling with the ones who are unjust. We find the sovereign God reconciling with every sinner. And this morning, that should just blow our mind and get, get our attention today that there's peace when we come to Jesus Christ. We have peace with God. Our relationship with God no longer is one that's, an, uh, that's animosity. Notice in Psalms 32 verses 1 and 2. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man unto whom the Lord imputeth not iniquity, and whose spirit there is no guile. The word blessed is the word that's translated in the Greek, makarios. It means happy. He says, happy is the man whose transgression is forgiven. Hey, listen, maybe you're being weighted down by the burden of sin. And maybe you're being weighted down by the burden of religion, and the burden of good works, and the burden of a sinful path, whatever it may be. Listen, today, you can find liberty. You can find release, you can find pity, you will find forgiveness, you will find freedom, and you'll find peace with God by simply by faith accepting God's Son, Jesus Christ, as your Savior. You must begin in your heart realizing that you're a sinner and that your sin is so bad that it's condemned you to hell. We're under the sentence of condemnation. And until we believe that Jesus Christ alone died for our sins and rose again from the dead, unless we believe that, we cannot be saved. But I've got good news for you this morning. He that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath ever everlasting life and shall not see condemnation but is passed from death to life. God wants to transition you from being condemned to having eternal life. From having no peace to having peace. To having no forgiveness to having forgiveness. And this morning the greatest need this morning we have is if you're not saved and you're not sure you're going to heaven it's accept God's forgiveness for your life today. Now remind you today, God doesn't is not waiting for you with his arms like this. God's waiting for you with arms wide open. He's willing to forgive. He's willing to reconcile. He's willing to give peace. He's willing to accept you. And when I say forgiveness, forgiveness of all of our sins, past, present, and future. Amen. Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. The first prayer on the cross, his prayer wasn't, Lord, take away the pain. His prayer was not, take away this cup. He did that in the Garden of Gethsemane. His prayer was not, Lord, let me down. I can't get, I can't get, I can't do this. His prayer was not, Lord, send 10,000. No, his prayer was, Father, forgive them. Would you understand this morning? I want to fast forward 2,000 years later. Christ is still echoing that same prayer this morning. He wants to forgive you. 
If you're here this morning, you're not sure you're saved. Jesus Christ wants to forgive you of all your sins. Would you come to him today? Would you come to the cross? Forgiveness begins by coming to the cross and recognizing there a sacrifice, suffering, and a substitute was made. Maybe today as a Christian, there is an unconfessed sin or sins in your life. You're struggling with the sin problem. You're saved, but you're struggling with the sin problem. Would you claim 1 John 1, 9 and recognize this morning we have a God who's fair, he's faithful and just, not only to forgive us of our sins, but to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It might be good for us to spend some time today just at the altar or at our seat, kneeling down and humbling ourselves before God and saying, I'm in need of your forgiveness. Whoever you may be, whatever your situation, God offers to you this matter of forgiveness. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Our Father, today, we pray that the forgiveness of God would be received today. We pray that your forgiveness would be accepted. We pray that your forgiveness would be taken, Lord. I pray this morning that you release believers who are suffering, Lord, perhaps with insecurities about forgiveness. Christians today, perhaps, who are battling with, uncon with sins they've never confessed. Lord, I pray for believers today to, across the room to, Lord, accept and receive God's forgiveness for their lives. I pray this morning that they would look down on a, on, a, on, a, on a horizontal level and realize perhaps to their husband or to their wife or to their children or to their parents or to another brother or sister in Christ that there, there's the need for the exercise of forgiveness on our part. I pray for some who are suffering because of someone who's, uh, who's, got, who's an enemy of theirs, realizing the importance of forgiving their enemies and praying for their enemies. I pray that, Lord, that the grace of God and the love of Jesus Christ would permeate us a congregation having that love and forgiveness. But for every sinner here today who's not saved, for every person who's never accepted Jesus Christ as Savior, thank God that the mercy extended there on the cross 2,000 years ago is still extended today. That forgiveness is still available and still can be received. And I pray this morning that you touch hearts and move in souls today to receive that forgiveness with every head bowed and every eye closed. Perhaps today I'm talking to someone you've never received God's complete and total forgiveness for your sins to be saved. How many of you would say this morning by the raise your right hand, Pastor Fong, I can tell you today that I've received God's forgiveness. I know that Jesus Christ is my Savior. I've taken him as my Savior, and I know that he's forgiven me. You'd raise your hand and say, I know that Christ is my Savior, and I've received forgiveness all over the room, all over the room. You've received God for God, thank you. God, thank you this morning. Now, if you couldn't raise your hand today because you know in your heart of hearts you need to be saved, here's how you can be saved today. Right where you're seated, you can call on Jesus Christ to be your Savior. You can pray and say, dear God, I need you today. Here's what you can pray so you can receive the fairness and the forgiveness and freedom that comes from Jesus Christ. Here's what you can pray. But you must mean this with all your heart. It must be from the bottom of your heart. Dear Heavenly Father, I confess that I'm a sinner who needs to be saved. I repent of my sins and believe with all my heart that your son Jesus Christ died for my sins and rose again from the dead. I believe that Jesus is the only way to heaven. And I take his forgiveness now for all my sins. I take now your gift of eternal life. I receive today the wonderful privilege of becoming a son of God. Thank you for forgiving me and saving my soul in Jesus' name. Is there someone here today that would say, Pastor Fong, just now I prayed that prayer. I prayed with you and prayed that prayer and invited Jesus Christ into my heart to forgive me my sins 
and to make me a son of God. There's someone that would raise their hand and say, Pastor Fon, I want you to know this morning, I'm not ashamed to tell you that I accepted Jesus Christ as my Savior and I asked him for forgiveness. Anyone like that today? You say, Pastor, I prayed and asked Christ into my heart to be my Savior today. Anyone like that? I'll wait just a moment. Certainly, there are people here today. There's someone here today. You've never gotten saved. You've never come to the cross. And today's your opportunity. Come to the cross. Jesus, with pity, offers you the gift of eternal life. Would you come today? Lord, today, thank you, Lord, for this precious passage of Scripture. All of us are in need of forgiveness. All of us are in need of coming to you today, receiving that fresh bathing, that fresh cleansing, that freshness of forgiveness, this new start that is offered when we receive the forgiveness of God. Deal with hearts today who are not saved, that they'd accept Christ this morning. For others today, battling with forgiveness of others or battling with just receiving your forgiveness, have your way, we pray, as we give the invitation. We ask this in Jesus' name. 